Welcome to the Men Among Demons podcast. In a disoriented world, this is the podcast that asks what would happen if we truly put Christ at the center of our thinking. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Opperwall. And I'm your host, Dr. Greg Weeb. Hi, Greg. Hey, man. Well, we have a, a very special guest today um, on the Men Among Demons show for the month of November, and I'm very pleased to welcome you, Andrew, to the show, uh, as well as Greg, who's also here. Um, the two of you are in the same room, I want to note for our listeners, which is mm-hmm. a rare treat, I think, that is a first <laughs> ever on the Men Among Demons show that two people have been in the same room at the same time. Uh, I am still very distant and far away. Um, so, Andrew, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, our topic today is going to be sort of finance, capitalism, and wherever the spirit takes the conversation. But why don't you introduce yourself and uh, talk a little about your professional work and talk about where you're coming from, and we'll we'll take it from there. Yeah, so my name is Andrew. I'm a, a tax accountant here in Winnipeg. So, uh, of course, I attend St. Nicholas Church in Narrow with Greg, and that's how I uh, got to know Greg. And I have a recent convert to orthodoxy about uh, about two two and a half years um so yeah the conversation i kind of want to bring up here was about finance and my exposure to uh the idea of of usury of of interest and especially today i think there is a lot going on in the news of the cost of living and and the housing being an issue in canada and the united states um i see these kind of things come up in at my work and so i want to know kind of what are the ways that explore the ways that con- conflicts with or maybe not with our faith mm-hmm. how we should participate in the financial systems of the world whether we go you know there's different how other religions and christianity have participated in the financial systems whether it's interest rates or passive income living off the land so these are the kind of things i'm i'm interested in exploring with you guys yeah, absolutely. So, like, let's let's dive into all those things. But first, um, you mentioned exposure to this stuff at work. I mean, you don't need need to go into a ton of detail, but mm-hmm. like, what what's the what is the work, and and how does that end up looking? Yeah. So, I primarily my job is preparing tax returns, but I'm also a, a consultant for a lot of business owners, people who have large construction businesses and also smaller businesses like um, having rental properties and smaller construction businesses, people who, um, yeah, just smaller businesses and people who are looking for advice and how they can make more money. And these are kind of the ways in which I start to feel a bit of conflict is when people talk about making more money and it's, there almost seems to be an, an element of extraction of resources from people, especially when it comes to um, buying and selling property and people who make a lot off of these systems. There's been some scenarios at work where not that my faith would come into question or any problems like that, but where I think the device I'm providing or the decisions people make seem to conflict with my faith. It's never caused me to want to stop doing my job, but these are things I think about. Like an easy one is a rental property where someone lives in a home and now someone is owns the property and their whole goal is to make money off someone who's surviving who's living off their means mm-hmm. how do we justify these systems where someone is making income off of someone else um 
when for nothing, for a very little kind of activity. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does make sense. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm curious if you want to jump in and answer your own question a little bit. <laughs> well, these are the things I, I struggle with as I'm, I'm wondering where, how does our faith fit into participating in, in these financial systems such as capitalism, where there is the whole idea of capitalism, there needs to be uh, endless growth. Every business has year over year profits. Every person wants to see their income increase, right. their spending increase, their assets increase. But we live in a finite world. We live in a world with only so many houses, so many resources, so much gold and wood and metals, so much labor and, and humanity to go around. I mean, that's one of the the most basic definitions of economics is the how do we distribute uh, limited resources right. among a limited population in a fair way that recognizes everybody's participation in the system. And I think about ways of we, how can we as Christians participate in the system or if we need to? Um, with, I mean, maybe, maybe one way into it is, is to describe... It's, it's to get into what exactly the nature of the problem mm. is, but it, with a specific example and not just like capitalism presents significant challenges, uh, you know, and, and it's probably demonic. Um, but like this question of like, re- of renting, like sp- spin out a little bit, your, your sense of how do we pronounce it? The rentier class, rentier class. We go French or <laughs> renter, renter right. class works well enough for me, guys. <laughs> the lordship, the, the lordship, exactly. Like what you know, so 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 spit like spin out for us what what's on what's on your mind that that strikes you as a problem uh, in that in in passive using using housing. Uh, and real estate as a means of passive income, because Lord knows, uh, you know, I see other people making money off of off you know passive income off oh, yeah. of off of renting places. You know, when I sometimes think like, man, geez, I should have, I could use a revenue stream, right? Couldn't you use a revenue stream? Well, no doubt, there's money to be made, and yeah. I think like the issue I come with with the the way the market is going. In, in Winnipeg, it feels, and I think it's it's worse in other cities in Canada. Yeah, I don't not super familiar with other countries such as in the states. I think see, it might, it'll vary city by city. It's, but there's it's a limited... getting it's getting much worse in the United States. The baseline right. because of what happened in 2008 was much lower. So there's like a little yeah. There's there was kind a of big more, correction. There's 2008 was a big correction. Correct. And Canada mm-hmm. didn't have that correction. So there's more runway. It, in the United States um, is, is my basic read, you know, from when I'm there and the stuff I read in the news. Uh, but the trajectory is very, very similar. So Still it, the same, trajectory. same essential problem. So, but not to, not to interrupt. Yeah. Too much, the, the problem is there's only so many houses and houses are a, a, a need that every human being needs to survive. There's yeah. only so much to go around and it can be, it, it, there's a certain, we're ending up in a situation where you can have two classes of people, the people, the renting class and the people, the ownership class. It didn't always used to be this way. Housing was affordable. And there's even my parents and other people in their forties and their fifties talk about a time where one parent could get a labor job, buy a house and their spouse would stay at home with the kids. 
the people who got in at this time, at that time, 20, 30 years ago or more are doing very well. Property prices have increased incredibly much in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, but not in scale with income. Mm-hmm. But the people who have income are now able to, or have property, are able to leverage against it, buy more property, acquire more. And this is beyond even getting into the idea of corporations owning dozens of properties. Yeah, yeah. But when the property is now held in a, a smaller and smaller group of hands and more people are required to live a way of just all their income funding someone else, it's a, a, a dividing in the, in the economic system, in our population of the haves and the haves not. And that divide is getting wider as the supply of houses is smaller in relation to the income or in, in proportion to the population. Right. Yeah. So it strikes me, one thing that I, I read, and I, I won't be able to remember where or, or who wrote it, um, and maybe I've run into it a couple of times, but th- there is a, there's something interesting going on in the social construct of housing or the owning of a house as con- construing that as an investment mm-hmm. that becomes self-perpetuating in a way that it maybe doesn't really have to be if we just thought of it very differently. Like if we thought of housing the way we think of an automobile, like nobody buys an automobile and yeah. just said, well, it's going to, it's going to increase in value over time more and more and more and more. Um, and there are, there are some key differences between an automobile and a house, you know, the, the, the car will degrade, you know, it's utility will degrade more rapidly in, a, in maybe a more, you know, tangible way, but, but nonetheless, um, the expectation, this is what this is what I was reading, and it makes a lot of sense to me, becomes in many respects a self-fulfilling prophecy. If people just right. didn't expect housing prices to infinitely right. rise, they maybe wouldn't necessarily. Now, the supply and demand does come into the picture, and I think that's having a big impact right now. Um, but it seems like at least a big part of it is the notion that, oh, I buy a house not just because I need a place to live and I need a place where my kids can sleep and whatever, um, as a kind of consumable good, a thing that, you know, I just need, but I, I, I buy it for that, but I also buy it on the notion that, oh, housing prices, they just always go up. You know, you hear that housing prices always go up and because we expect them to always go up and we just act like they will always go up. It, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, um, it's in part because, because that sort of intuitive need for the housing prices to go up has concrete impacts on, on, um, on the regulation of building housing in a place like Canada. Canada is notoriously red tapey and bureaucratic when it comes to developing housing. So there is, there is untapped capacity for a lot of Canadian cities to, to build, to build more, but like there is this kind of, (laughs) there's this kind of, like it's part of the it's it's almost in the spirit of Canada to to not let housing de- develop that mm. much and and address right to keep to keep downward pressure on the supply because of our our cultural need for the the for the the, the prices of housing to keep going up. People would be furious if you instituted a whole series of oh, policies yeah. and changes that would cause it. To, cause the system to to act such that if I buy a house for X dollars, you know, today, I'm hoping to sell it for the same amount adjusted for inflation 
in 40 years and consider yeah. that, well, that that's fine. Like I didn't lose money. You could, you could easily imagine a housing culture in which that was yeah. just expected and that was okay. And policies consistent with that were okay. But we, we have this culture where we expect, no, I'm going to buy a house today. And when I sell it in what in even in two years or, but five years, or if it's 20 years, I will expect to have made a very tidy return on a capital gain. Cause I, this is meant to be an investment. And so you couldn't get what, one of the things that pops into my mind is I'm a U.S. citizen. I can't make anywhere near as much money in the Canadian housing world as yeah. you people without an American passport, because in the United States, there's capital gains tax on housing, even mm -hmm. if it's your primary residence. You get a very nice runway, I believe $250,000 of tax-free profit uh, on, on selling a house. And then after that, it's a capital gains tax, which is a, a, a relatively, you know, it usually ends up being maybe at most about a quarter of, of what okay. you gain, but it is a mechanism that creates some downward pressure. So you can't have what's possible here in Canada, which is that housing prices in Canada, as long as you're selling a house and then buying another house could literally be infinite. You know, if my house tomorrow were worth a billion dollars, like if houses cost a billion dollars, well, I already own one. So I can sell yeah. mine for a billion dollars and go buy another one for a billion plus a hundred thousand, right? Yeah. I yeah. can deal with that because I, I have, I'm inside the market and there is zero, absolutely no tax pressure. There is no doubt, nothing. So right. whereas if you had a, even a small capital gain, that becomes, um, well, at least a lot more difficult. You can, if, if the new house is going to cost me a billion dollars and I'm going to sell mine for a billion, but I have to give a hundred million in tax, you know, all of a sudden I can't just jump around the bubble has a certain amount of downward pressure yeah. maybe it's not enough whatever but i what where that comes up in my mind is just thinking about what would happen in canada if a politician you know at the federal level or the provincial level or wherever came forward and was like we're going to have capital gains on even your primary res people would freak out. I oh, mean, yeah. you would, it's the best <laughs> possible thing you could do to lose an election by the biggest landslide in the history of Canada, because damn it, we demand to make, we are accustomed to making infinite profit tax-free on our houses. And like hell, are you going to take that away from the people who've been banking on that all these years? And that's a social thing, right? That's mm. not just a pure economics. It's not even just a pure capitalist thing. That's a social expectation that an American wouldn't have. They're used to paying a capital gains yeah. if they make a ton of money on their house. They accept that, right? Um, but we don't, and we, we, we actually, we basically can't do it as a result of that social construct. And so that's all, inter it's intertwined, it seems to me, with, with this, this expectation we're talking about, like my house yeah. should be an investment. I should make money on it. And that expectation, it comes right at the heart of the housing issue, which is this cognitive dissonance in the, the whole entire population of Canada that we, everybody wants house prices to go up. So when I own a house, I'll make money off it, but I also want prices to be low. So my kids can buy a house. And so I can buy a house and the politicians are trying to have it both ways. Mm -hmm. They are trying policy solutions that help young people buy houses, but they will do nothing to really to actually allow prices to go down. Well, um, usually it just helps prices go up. It's like, here's well, some free, here's some free money for a down payment. Right? Yeah. If we want to get into the nitty gritty of, of actual solutions they're trying to implement. Yeah. Putting more pocky and money into the pockets of buyers is producing the opposite. It's yeah. increasing. It's yeah. actually providing more funds to buyers, which is an upward 
yeah. push on this, prices this, now. This happened very concretely in the in the uh, suburb of very near in suburb of Detroit that I grew up on, which is called Gross Point Park, Michigan. Um, Gross Point Park is has uh, Gross Point is famous for being you know all rich old money people, but there's this, a very large section of this particular town, Gross Point Park, that is, uh, you know, much more affordable. It's a lot of duplexes, triplexes, lots of rentals. It's kind of a cool area. People like it. A lot of young people have been moving in the last 10, 20 years. And Gross Point Park wanted to attract these people. They wanted they wanted to get yeah, young people, new professionals right out of college. Yeah, come move here. Come move here. We want to get you in, make this, a, you know, a, an attractive, fun place to live for, for young people, which to me, I mean, that's cool. That's That seems like a a fun object, whatever, good objective, not an evil one, maybe. But say what they did is basically gave all kinds of rent subsidies <laughs> to people. Right. And all that happened, and this was like virtually overnight, is all the rents in the area just went up by that amount. Because now they right. know you have that yeah. <laughs> in your pocket from the city. And now we're just going to charge you because they didn't cap. There was no rent cap that accompanied this. You as a landlord could still charge whatever. So if you give everyone 500 bucks a month in rent, they're like, cool, I'm going to take my current rent and then add 500 to it. Because <laughs> right. I was able to get that current rent. And now the people in the market have whatever they had before plus 500. So now it's mine, right? It just goes straight to the landlords. It was, a, it was a huge biff. And people were just laughing about how dumb this was. I don't know if they're still doing it. I think they might have stopped. But uh, but yeah, it's like it's, it's literally exactly what happens when you, when you dump money on people to try to fix the problem. Yeah, you, you brought up a good policy solution idea, which is the taxation of principal residences. And there's that. And there's also the whole idea of, well, capital gains in Canada. And for the most part in the United States, it's there's a little more complex there, but capital gains in Canada are taxed at half of the regular rates. Yeah, it's basically the same. In the, in the, yeah, in the States, there's a distinction between short-term gains Correct. and long-term yeah. gains. Yeah. So it gets a little more complicated, but in Canada, it's it's at half. Yeah, it's and not a he- so it's not a heavy tax at all. It's a very low tax. Yes, and it's yeah. which is wild to me because it comes at income that is earned cheaply. Yeah, like it is, especially for someone who is trading stocks per se, or like buy a rental property, make money off it for five years and sell it. You're getting taxed at a at a lesser rate, even though the money is guaranteed to be in your pocket at that point because mm-hmm. you just sold a property or just disposed of some stocks. Uh, I've had clients of mine who or there were potential clients I was consulting with ask me about my opinion on capital gains tax. And I told them, I think it should be the regular rate and they weren't happy. And I think they left, but um, (laughs) (laughs) they wanted my opinion. And my opinion was, well, maybe the taxes should be higher. Um, But But that's kind of interesting because that's not a fair question to ask you. I mean, you're not in charge of that. And and your advising of them is is surely not going to be based on like what you would do if you were the 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 sole emperor totalitarian leader of Canada. They wanted uh, I mean, someone on their matter? side to, to say they felt oh, you weren't on your those side. damn CRA. <laughs> so okay, well that's that, that's that's an interesting thing. We could talk more about that too. Is a, yeah, antipathy towards taxation and, and government in general. Mm. But uh, that's I, I find that a really interesting <clears throat> vignette because it kind of points to some of our positionality as Christians in this. It's like. Uh, and this is sort of where you started. And I think this is the really meaty topic to try to dissect a little bit here. Like if we as a, as Christians are looking at this system and we see 
these sorts of flaws, these sorts of issues, we've talked about one set of them here with housing. What are we, what are we going to do? Like, what is the Christian supposed to do? So if you sit there with your client and you say, well, if it were totally up to me, I would tax capital gains at the, at the, whatever the regular income tax rate is instead of half of that. Um, okay. Right. But like, you don't get to just do that. Right. Mm. Uh, and so now, and let's say that client didn't walk away and they said, okay, well, that's cool. It's interesting to know that about you. Anyway, let's get down to business. What are you going to do now? I mean, it seems to me like you, you would just advise and represent your client the best you can, right? You try to Absolutely. do your job well. Um, but that's like, what, what do we do with that? Because I think we're all in that situation. I don't think it's just you. I don't think it's just people in high finance. I think it's, literally anyone who lives in this society and eats food ever, right? Whoever, who is surviving in Canada, you participate in this entire system, a system that you see the flaws of, that you see the demonic forces in, and that you have no choice but to participate in, unless you're just going to walk out into the woods and stand there until you die like a, like a Jainist in, in, you know, in India. Mm -hmm. uh, those are kind of your options. And that's like, what, what the hell? Yeah. The, the participation in the system, like the whole point of this growth that I talked about that every, every company, every person seeks that infinite growth. It doesn't even have to be that way. Like that idea is something that is mandated upon us by governments, by the central banks who impose inflation on us. Inflation is not inevitable. It doesn't have to be countries have had, deflation, such as Japan in recent history, countries could pursue a 0% inflationary policy to have the price of things be consistent year after year after year. Let's try to keep the cost of goods the same. Let's try to keep the wage for the average laborer, the average person doing the same job the same year after year. Let's allow house prices to be the same. It's a policy that could be pursued, but it isn't. The idea of an inflationary policy that pursues the cost of goods going down is to encourage spending, to encourage uh, accumulation and consumption, to encourage also innovation. People pursue new inventions, new goods, ways for things to be more efficient. Money in your pocket is now burning, literally. You can't leave money in your pocket because it's going to be worth less tomorrow. You have to spend it. It keeps the, the economy churning. Um and I think that's kind of, that's the part of the, I think, inherent evils maybe of the system is that we're always we're having consumption and growth forced upon us, even if I don't want it. Mm. That, I, mean, I think yeah. that's, yeah, go ahead, Greg. Well, it is interesting, like how much that's tied to productivity, right? Because, because that, that's the flip side. The flip side of the coin is that this is, the, it's the most this economic system is the most productive that the world has ever seen. Right. Right. It's, it's been the most, it has, has had the greatest capacity to de uh, develop and innovate and, uh, you know, creatively come up with, with any number of solutions to problems. Right. Cause you, because like the, the flip side being that you, you can tie it directly like there's a real, I think there's a real ambivalence to the whole thing because you can tie it directly to the, you know, the fact that as, as things get colder here in Winnipeg, like we're going to be comfortably heated in our mm -hmm. homes and, and uh, able to get from one place to another in, in relatively inexpensive automobiles, as long as you haven't had to buy one lately. 
you know what I mean? Like <clears throat> we've that, that pressure, that economic pressure to keep going, keep innovating, keep, you know, keep finding new solutions, better solutions, more efficient solutions. Uh, like has provided all sorts of stuff that we love. We love it. Oh, yeah. Right. We love all this stuff. And even as Orthodox Christians, we sure, you know, even if, even if we chastise ourselves a little bit for like, man, do we take a lot for granted? And we do, we like, we still rely on it so deeply, right. To the extent that we don't, we don't think of half the stuff that we, that we rely on refrigeration, uh, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. The printing of our books. The printing of our books. Yeah. The fact that we have this library behind us mm -hmm. where books like these would be worth mm -hmm. years and years of wages mm -hmm. to write. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. All of Knowledge that. is cheap. It's, yeah. yeah it's and it, it also occurs to me there that like, even if we, like, we don't run Canada, we don't run the world. So... <laughs> Yeah, so for one thing, we shouldn't we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook because I mean we we participated in ways I think we we just don't like you just said Greg we don't even actually apprehend yeah. how and how much we like it I I love living in Canada I love right. the prosperity I love you know whatever sitting in a hot tub at the family cottage and believe me I feel a real moral ambivalence about it I really do and I also <laughs> like it I mean I didn't buy that place my father did but um, and so. Oh, I can maybe wriggle my way out. Well, I just, you know, whatever. He, Dude, he shows Dan, I didn't. You there's know, Dan but, sitting in the hot tub. Trust do I get me, in I the hot like, tub? I feel ambivalent about this. Trust <laughs> me. <laughs> well, but I'm precisely trying not, not to get myself off the hook. I'm precisely trying to. Right. But like, so that even if you did, um, and if, we, like, if we just take something very concrete and specific, let's, like, going back to that capital gains idea, just this one, one little thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as, as an Orthodox Christian, I in very, very honestly would be prepared if, if some federal politician came along and said, we're going to have capital gains even on principal residences. I would be prepared to look around me, look at this country and say, well, that's not going to be good for my pocketbook, but I think it will be better for Canada. I will support you. I, and I, I would. I really would do that, truly and sincerely. But there's no way in hell that the rest of the voters of this country will. And, and so I can't just make that happen. And so there, there's a stuckness as well. And you were talking there, Andrew, about inflation. And like, you know, I look at my you know portfolio of investments or whatever. And it's like, yeah, you, what choice do you have? If I put that money under my mattress, it burns up. It's like putting some of it every day in a fire, a tiny little bit in a fire because of inflation. And what that means is I have less to support my family with. And very importantly, I have less to support my parish with. My parish is a very small, we're a new community. We're very dependent on the, the few, the handful of established families we have that can consistently give good sized tithes. We have a lot of membership that can't do that. They're younger people, they're whatever, they're in different financial situations. They give what they can, you know, they, whatever it is, even if it's 10 bucks or 50 bucks or 100 bucks a month. But we cannot survive on that. We need those established, stable families. If, if my family is going to be one of them, I cannot do anything but invest prudently and wisely. Otherwise, the system burns up my money. And I don't have it to give to St. Maria's anymore. And I don't feel great about that as a Christian either. Um, so again, this isn't to just like exonerate myself and say, oh, I see I'm washed clean. My motivations are so pure. They're not. But 
it's I'm very stuck. What else am I supposed to do? I want this parish to continue growing. I'm, you know, our family is a linchpin of the financial health of the parish, and we have costs, and we have a priest who has costs and needs, therefore, to be paid, and all these sorts of things. Um, what I uh, my hands are tied. I have to I have to put it into the market. I have to buy those stocks. You know, I have to sell them at those profits. I have to use those strategies to minimize my taxes within legal bounds. Um, what uh, there's nothing. What else can I do? Yeah, as Jesus once said, "Don't hate the player, hate the game." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you it's have a, any thoughts on that, though, Andrew? Like, it's what, a rough game. Yeah. Yeah, I we're mean, like, it's us taking it at it. So we can look at this in two ways. We can look at it at the societal level and we can also look at it at the individual level. And so I'm talking there kind of about the individual, like, what do I do? Like one, one man, one voter, one taxpayer, one investment portfolio. Yeah, right. Like what, what, the, what should I do? Yeah, we're, we're bound into the system. And I, I make the similar choices that you do. Like it's, I'm given this amount of money for my labors. What do I do with it? I spend it to support myself. I put a portion away for my retirement, which I'm thinking about now. And even then it's like, well, if I need, no one's going to support me when I'm 70, 80, 90 years old. Um, every, all the retirements this country are based off of us putting money away when we're young. And then hopefully my house that I bought when I was 20 is worth 10 times as much so I can sell it. And Cycling pay for right back rent. to the beginning. Yeah. And it's, yeah. that's, I think that would be the huge um, protest if they were to ever tax capital gains or to tax principal residences would be all the seniors saying, well, you just destroyed my retirement plan. My house there, is my there retirement a, there plan. There's a promise. There's a kind of social yeah. promise made to me and you now broke it. And now I have nothing for my retirement. Same thing. If the housing market were to ever crash or even stabilize, if house prices stabilize, you're going to have a lot of people saying my retirement was my house, which I bought for $90,000 in 1990. And now it's worth uh, half a million. Yeah. Like that was my retirement plan and now it's stabilized or now it's correcting. How do we participate in the system? I, like I said, I do the same as you. I try to, I invest. It's, you have to like the, at the inflation rates we're seeing right now, it's, it's incredible how fast money is depreciating. And when I start feeling nihilist, I wonder if I should even bother investing at all, if I should just spend all my money. Yeah, It sounds ridiculous, but I, I get that way. Why not just enjoy all of my labors now? And maybe I'll live off of CPP and OAS when I'm old or not. I don't know. <laughs> like, and that's, that's the way that's I think you, sometimes. Yeah. And you were saying earlier that that's kind of what the system wants you to do. That's what inflation mm -hmm. is, is, is partly for, right? To get you to, to spend more, to buy more yep. today, right now, uh, before, before inflation's good. Buy the car now. I mean, we just did that this year, right? Like, well, it's. Let's do this now, you know, before it gets worse. Or in the housing market, you know, when we bought our house, like, well, it's, you know, it just seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. And well, if we do it now, then we'll, and that's what the system wants, right? They want, it wants you to spend, wants you to mm -hmm. consume. And that seems like a very profoundly demonic pattern. It, it, my instinct is that, uh, and I think Greg, you and I have talked a little bit about this on the show, is that we, we talk about a lot of demonic patterns on this show, but to me, it so often, almost always in our society seems to circle back to that consumerism. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if we're talking about stuff like, you know, whatever, sexual ethics and these sorts of things, it seems like a lot of what we're doing circles back to like what really matters is to consume. We've got to consume. 
uh, for, you know, to keep this whole game going, to keep everything rolling. Like that, that's the kind of fundamental demon of our culture that infects everything. And it affects our whole mind, our whole mindset, our whole way of viewing what the good life is. And again, this includes me. I don't think I'm fully exempt from it. Oh, it's, it's contagious too. Like yeah. this, this week, my friend, a coworker of mine is told me he's getting a new car, had a found opportunity, bought a used car from a family member. All of a sudden I'm on car websites. Yep. Oh, my car, my car is 20 years old. Mine's not going to look very good. It's getting rusty. Maybe it's time. I deserve it. I got to raise this year. You, right? yeah. yeah. And I don't want yeah. it. I'm doing a new car there. Andrew? And you? I'm self-aware of this too. And like, I'm, you know, we're having, the, we're the smart ones here having this conversation <laughs> and I'm still, you know, oh, 10 I minutes ago browsing cars. for new cars. Look I in. I love oh, new cars. I could I, justify I, it. I deserve of it. Of course. We Haven't just you bought, we bought a new car. Maybe? I work hard. Yeah. There's, it's so much fun. You get this brand new vehicle. It's just like, mm, you get to rev that engine. If you buy a true brand new car, you got that new car smell and it just looks so good and it's so clean. And yeah. I love it. It's, it's just, I love it. I shouldn't. <laughs> and you know it's like, gonna I be like, like I'm being honest disappointed here, man. Like, after two yeah. like there's it's all that this like looking forward to this thing and then afterwards yeah. and it's like ooh now I owe eight hundred dollars a month and yeah. that's all my money wow okay yeah and it's right. how many years oh seven years of all of my money okay hope I don't have to buy anything for seven years ooh so the price of cars is wild and there's uh, we could talk about the price of things forever but right. um. Something else I kind of wanted to bring up, like you said, in response, how do we live with these systems was kind of how the way some other religions have dealt with the the consumerism, the greed, mm -hmm. yeah. the society. Yeah. Like I think about um, like Amish and Hutterite colonies that say, nope, we don't want anything to do with the system. We're going to check out. They but but there, there's a bit of a hypocrisy and... there, isn't there? Like, I mean, some of those Hutterite colonies are like crazy rich corporations. The Hutterites, yeah, the, no, the yeah. Hutterites are a little different. The Hutterites okay. haven't. The Hutterites don't um, don't eschew technology and and that right. stuff. All, but but they but everything is commonly owned. Yes, and they have and and their economy. They just make they just make careful decisions about what does and does not like what what technological advancements they're going to permit mm. themselves to use and right. not and they and they make that decision in in terms of their theological principles and whether and whether there's inconsistency or not or hypocrisy i mean like there's undoubtedly going to be some but it's uh but it's like they i mean they're fascinating because they're not unmodern that's the thing people think people will do kind of what 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 you sort of just instinctively did which is which is pair the, the high right. rates and the, and, and the amish and they're pretty different exactly in this right like they they the amish took a snapshot of of life in a particular time and place and said that's what it's got to yeah. be and it didn't include electricity and it didn't include powered you know automobiles so it's horse and buggy which is also a form of technology just one yes. that's now outdated by a little bit well, in and amish own businesses too i believe right i mean if they can use things i mean it might depend on the community but i you know i do have some programmer friends who i know listen to the show hi guys uh who i believe have been working for i mean they they keep saying amish i mean maybe they're confusing amish and Hutterites, but it's here in ontario so i think they really are amish mm -hmm. um you have some amish have, on ontario yeah yeah who have these um 
you know, very fancy like manufacturing business, and they're allowed to use all kinds of technology. Right. Um, it'd be fun to have one of them on the show right now to tell to tell some of the stories about like the little. There's these little weirdnesses in some of the work they do. Like the guy can't. Oh, yeah touch the computer so he has to like whatever kind of turn it to them but if they touch it and then it's only used for the business now it's okay so the businesses are very high tech like they need these they need <laughs> these coders it's these sounds this like, computer coding sounds like orthodox jew uh, orthodox jew uh uh halakha yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, but then they go home to the horse and buggy but they're at this you know the highest tech factory that they yeah. can get because that's for the business that's okay because right. even an amish has to pay taxes and this is okay. another key right. part of it you have to have some canadian dollars in your hot little hand by the end of the year to hand over to the government or you are in deep trouble. If you want to go live in the woods off, off the fat of the land, either you or someone you know who's letting you do that on their property is going to have to have some dollars, Canadian dollars in their fist to fork over to the government. And you've got to get those dollars some way, which means you've got to participate at least a little bit in the system. You must, by law, do something yeah. to get yeah. some Canadian dollars. The kind of participatory exclusion I was thinking of was the collection of interest, where like these are groups that yeah, don't yeah. collect interest off each other and don't mm -hmm. collect it from their deposits. Mm -hmm. And the, the Canadian government does recognize these communal living places and they don't pay into the CPP program either. So there is even a recognition mm -hmm. of this way of life and almost like a saying, well, you this is a recognized way of life that you live on this colony. You don't have to participate in in one of the systems. Of course, there is still tax, like you said, they're not mm -hmm. completely on their own. But I find it interesting to see how some groups have, you know, followed some of the things we're thinking about to their maybe logical conclusions. How do we stop making money off each other? Now they're still, they get rich off of selling their goods to the outside world. But within the system, you see a group of people who are living similar, similar economic well-being between mm -hmm. each other, one another, or have share things in common. Mm -hmm. Is that yeah, a better I, I, way of I, life or just, or just different? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Islam has similar patterns. You can't That's charge right. or pay interest in yep. Islam. But one of the things is when you, when you look at Islamic finance and I'm not an expert on the topic, but uh, you know, I have read things about it and studied it just a little bit is you end up with this just kind of very, and you just kind of do an end around like, mm -hmm. Oh, you're going to buy a house through Islamic financing through an Islamic bank in, in Dearborn, Michigan. And yeah, they won't charge you any interest. They're just going to charge you a fee at, you know, every whatever number of months that ends up being the same as if I pay interest to my bank and we call it interest. And it's, you just kind of move words around like, cause right. in the Islamic world, banks, they have to make money just like they do in our mm. world. Like they're not going to just lend you money just to be a nice guy, right? Not if they're not if they're a, they're a business. They got to make a profit. That's what they do, and they're allowed to do that. So they just kind of they don't call it interest, but it ends up being the same. Well, it has yeah, to. because in because interest does something, and it does something beneficial, right? Like it has, and it has to do with the the assumption of risk. 
right? When lend, when lending money, right? The scripture it's, says explicitly, mm-hmm. we cannot lend money at interest. I know, I know <laughs> what it says. We cannot do that. And I, like to me, it's the to we me do it all the super, time. It's super fascinating to to have learned just a little bit. And and Andrew, I'd be interested to hear more. You know what you think, but like just in terms of how that works. But just to have been introduced to that to that notion, um, like that to to lend at interest means that like gets the gets the. The, the debtor to assume some of the risk of the of the loan right now what's in what's interesting is that the way we've configured our society it's like the debtor tends to assume all of the risk of the loan but but in theory like if if it doesn't you know if there's no cost to borrowing money um and borrowing money becomes easier and easier then you just tend to borrow more and more of it and chasing after all the desires we were just talking about being themselves a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. So having interest is a kind of downward pressure on, on the desire of, of, of the debtor to, to gain and gain. Like there seems That's interesting. But, I love the way you worded that. Cause that ties directly with the way the bank of Canada is addressing inflation. Uh-huh increasing interest rates is a way of curbing spending because right. to slow down the hot economy that is spending and spending and causing all these upward price pressures is to increase interest to curb your spending directly. Right. And that they can't ex- quite say it out loud, but right? that's exactly but that, the but goal. That's, in but fact, that's, that's what it does. That's economics yeah, yeah. 101. Right. Like, yeah. 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 They, yeah, they certainly that's... know that's what they're doing, even if they don't say it politically. Mm-hmm. Like for what it's worth, I think it's interesting my, my sense, and it'd be worth looking into it a little bit more, but my sense of the of the biblical injunctions about lending and borrowing, like there tends to be this moral sort of moralistic assumption that that what good people do is pay their debts, right? You should pay if you're going to borrow, you have to pay your debts. Right? Are you are you drawing on David Graeber here by any chance? Debt. The... Yes. Yeah. 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 So, there, but great, uh, great book. Well worth reading. Yeah. You know, especially for a, you know an atheist communist. Uh, <laughs> it's a really it's very deep, smart. David Graeber made me a monarchist, mind. which I think was a backfire for him. But uh, we don't have to go down that road. Go go ahead. <laughs> D. Yeah. A super enlightening book. Just from just from the stories and, and how and how he and how he puts things. But the idea, like. But it seems to me that the biblical injunctions don't don't actually really include that. They, I, I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to see if you could find anywhere the Bible says that you should pay your debts. Instead, well, I, I, I thought it was really interesting reading Graeber. This is a number of years ago. But one of the things I had never, that had never really occurred to me that he himself brought up is, A, yes, you have this moralistic notion in our society that, well, you have, you have to pay your debts. You, know, you borrow money, you got to pay it. But he also kind of points out in the book that, you know, in North America, you don't. Right. You just simply don't. You, you and you're not going to go to. We don't have debtors' prison. We got rid of that. We, you know, you'll you you can people declare bankruptcy all the time. Corporations declare bankruptcy. And for me, one of the really salient things that happened is when my beloved hometown of Detroit, Michigan, very famously went bankrupt a number of years ago. Best thing that's happened to the city in you know fifty to seventy years because they simply couldn't pay their debts. And what was really really interesting is that. The city of Detroit went bankrupt, said, yeah, we're, 
We're not going to pay you all back. And in our system, basically, the courts come and be like, okay, they're not going to pay you all back. Let's feel, let's figure out what they've got, what they're going to pay, and to whom, at what rates. And there's a whole process. This is how bankruptcy works. And uh, there's these debates back and forth. And of course, every one of their lenders is coming forward and screaming bloody murder about the unfairness, the this, the that, whatever, whatever, whatever. The process finalizes over whatever it took, a year or two, I don't know. Um, You know, those people got, took their haircut, as they call it. And (laughs) those lenders were the first people in line to loan the city of money, Detroit, more money. the next day yeah. because you know what they made their money that's why the interest is there they know there's a chance they're gonna not get the principal back that's precisely why they call they, why they create interest and their job as a lender the reason a place like the city of detroit before the bankruptcy had to pay such high interest rates is because everyone's like hey you know the chances keep going up and up that i'm not going to get this money again so if you want mm-hmm. it you're gonna have to pay me way more interest so that i can basically get it back yeah. through the interest plus more. And so these same lenders who were screaming about the unfairness and you know how how wrong this all was, they went straight back in line to lend the city more money because they made their money. They didn't lose money on all this. And that that to me was kind of mind-blowing. I hadn't really ever thought thought of it that way, which I, I thought I, I took a lot from Graeber's words and in that respect, that part of what interest yeah. does is all part of a system that actually has a benevolent upshot. I think it's a good thing that we don't have debtor's prison. Like you go back a couple right. hundred years and it's like, you don't pay your debts. You're in jail. We don't do that to people anymore. You don't have to pay people back. You can just no, not. But you can, but you can, you can sure ruin people, right? The fact that you, the fact that you have to borrow, the fact that you have to borrow to, Basically, to have a house, mm-hmm. have a home, to to get a car, in order to be able to drive to a job, so that you can service your debt on those things, right. is puts puts you in a really precarious position, right? This credit, like a credit based economy, is really can has has these super risky, these risky sides to it, right? So I I agree, Dan. I think that's I think that's exactly right. The like bankruptcy can be a real godsend. Um, but we still, but, but we still with the system as it is like it, you, there's still all sorts of ways of ruining, of ruining people, um, in and in around the forgive, like in and around that relation of that, that debt relation. Like, and just to finish my thought from before, like the, the, the two things it seems to me that are super emphasized biblically is that for for debtors for those borrowing money it's basic it's not the biblical the biblical commandments don't seem to be you should pay your debts but rather you should be trying not to get into debt in the first place just mm. to just to get ahead in life right yeah don't be coveting don't 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 be coveting and envious over over other things so that you wind up get, getting yourself into a position where you're borrowing money to get ahead because that leads that leads to problem you start defaulting on debts you know the creditors are going to come after you they're going to take your wife and your children they're going to enslave you like that's the reality and then and then the commandment to creditors is forgive your debts Mm -hmm. the lord has forgiven you you need to forgive your debts right you need to be okay with like and one thing we don't do necessarily that well so we we have a lot we we have we have a system of interest so that so that those who are borrowing money assume a bunch of risk for borrowing it. But the but creditors are supposed to assume some risk too. Right. And right. they do. They do. That, that's sort of what I was pointing out earlier. They they do. Yeah. 
Yeah. And they, they really do in our system to assume substantial risk in some cases. Because you can declare bankruptcy. I mean, bankruptcy is the legal mechanism of saying, I'm not paying you back. And now we'll go to a judge and they'll figure out what you get, what percent you get of what I owe you. Hmm. And then, and then we, and we will all walk away still free people. I'm not going to jail. Zero. There's zero chance. There's no possible way. Um, you're not getting your money back. So let's go talk to a judge and and he or she will decide what's fair. And then we're, and then we'll be done. And then you're done. Once that ruling has come down, that's it. I don't owe you anything anymore. Cleared up. Except you don't, you can't qualify for a mortgage anymore. Well, yeah, you'll get screwed in a lot of ways. I mean, the system has its ways of punishing you. <laughs> yeah. This is what you were just saying. I'm not like I'm not yeah. trying to say, oh, like, we've, yeah, we've yeah, figured yeah. it out. This is not what I'm saying. It's just yeah. like there's a lot of complexity here on both sides, which which is just really interesting to yeah, it's interesting to contemplate what what debt means and what I mean. We could probably do the whole second half half on um, what our obligations are as debtors and creditors because it strikes me what you're saying there, Greg, that. The system you're describing is is possible and can, and is often real and actual between people in a real community, people who actually know each other. Right. I have not not in extremely large amounts, but I have on a number of occasions in my life um, had somebody, a friend or a member of the church, who needs some money, and have given them some money and said, "If you can and want to pay this back, I'll I, I will take." your repayment. I will accept that. Um, otherwise it's yours, right? Like a giving without any expectation. Right. Um, and I think it's good to open that door because some people will want to pay you back and, you know, yep. maybe six months from now, things are a little better and they've, and they've got that 500 yep. bucks and they can come back and say, Hey, I really want to give you this 500 bucks back. And I will gratefully say, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate you paying me back. This is wonderful. Right. And if they don't my 500 bucks, but it's, it's a different kind of lending. It's to say, I'm lending this to you. And I know that it could be flushed and I'll never, never see it. That's right. Uh, but I don't know that you can do that at a system-wide level. No. I mean, a bank can't do that, right? Because you've taken all the, the relationship out of it in that exactly. case. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is a big part of Graeber's point in that book. Yes. Right? Huge. It's like, yes. like exactly to say that, quote unquote, primitive societies or credit-based societies, not cash. No. Mm-hmm. But, the, but, but to have a credit-based society such as we have right now with the level of anonymity that we have, where we don't yeah. know, where, where we're lending without knowing each other, that's where you start running real risk. Because as soon as you, as soon as you find yourself mired in debt, and his point that I, like, that I just, I think is absolutely spot on, is that as soon as you find yourself in crippling debt, your entire outlook becomes one of, of, figuring out how to convert everything of value into money. Yep. Right. Everything, your home mm-hmm. becomes like, how can I get money out of this home? Your, your, the people, your relations, how can I get money out of this yourself? Like, how can I sell myself in order to get money to pit, to service this debt that I've got? Right. Like that's, that's the danger of with, with, if you're borrowing, if you're lending and borrowing between people who don't know each other, where it's not Dan, who's like, if you can pay this back, great. If not, don't worry about it. If you're if you're borrowing from people who are like they're going to take it from you even if if, if even if it's like costs you everything, mm-hmm. your future ability to 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 own a home, yeah, or to, to rent or whatever, then it's like that. Then then it's like how can I turn everything around me into money? And that yeah, is exactly yeah. like exactly a demonic inversion. Mm.
I came when when Detroit went bankrupt. The biggest, hottest topic in it all was whether the judge should force the city of Detroit to sell all of the paintings and art that they right. own inside the Detroit Institute of Arts. Right. And they own some absolute masterpieces. I mean, Bruegel's Dance, which is one of the great, great, great examples, you know, a, a truly priceless kind of piece. A lot of the stuff in that museum is not owned by the city, so that wouldn't have been touched. It was, it's, you know, it's owned by somebody who's loaned it, and there's all sorts of arrangements. But a lot of it is owned by the city of Detroit. And there were a lot of people screaming from the rooftops, the city needs to be forced to sell all this art. It's just art. You know, you've got retirees who need to be paid back. You've got your creditors, and they need to be paid back, damn it. And you've got to sell every piece of art. And there was a lot of fear among a lot of people, including me, that the judge would end up siding with that and force them to clear out this remarkable cultural, artistic, and I would say even spiritual resource in the heart of the city just to turn it into money to hand the money over. Now, that's not what happened. The judge in the end decided they didn't have to do that. Those assets weren't going to be touched. And that's part of what happens in bankruptcy. The judge will decide this can be turned into cash and handed over, this can't. Like typically a principal home, they will not, uh, you're not, you can't be forced to sell in general your principal home to pay off your creditor because you live there. You need, that's not just a fungible asset. You can just do whatever you want with is the kind of thinking. Uh, But ultimately it's a judge and like, and there will be things that, you know, get forced, you get forced to turn into cash in the bankruptcy process, which is interesting, but it was, it was quite, it was quite the debate and it kind of, it's like a deep, deep debate between people who saw no value in that stuff other than what it could be sold for on the open market, which was God knows how many millions of maybe up to billion of dollars. Um, And, and then others who were like, no, this is, this stuff is outside money. This is art. This is beyond that cash finance creditor system this can't be touched this is a different category of thing uh and it has a different kind of meaning and that that ended up winning the day which i was very yeah. grateful for um but it was a it seemed like a close shave there for a while yeah. and it goes right to the heart of like this question of value like the only value i think we see in our society at this point is cash value right like what can that be sold for and other forms of value they don't have a lot of traction, it seems to me, anymore. Well, if you're ready to bring it back to where we started, like that idea of only seeing value is, I think, how we've gotten where we are with housing. Right. Is there's a, a class of people in Canadian society and all over the world, and the government's aware of this, that see a condo in Vancouver as dollar signs. Right. Yeah. They don't even need to rent it. If I buy this condo today in two years, it'll be increased by 30%. And keep it vacant. Yep. They don't even care. The cost of property tax for a year will easily be made up with how they see the growth with no regard for human need and human suffering. Like, yeah. as you would say, the art has a value to all of society in, in Detroit. There is a value, but the, the debtors just see dollars. Yeah. They just see what's it worth. What can you get for it today? And that kind of greed and commoditization and just seeing dollars instead of seeing a, a finite resource that is necessary for humanity is what's causing all these problems in housing in Canada and local humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Like part, like part of like, like you mentioned, like part of the issue there, especially in a place like Vancouver is like foreign investment yep. that, that, that sees, you know, which can foreign investment can be beneficial to an economy. And in some senses in a modern economy, you can't have 
you can't go without foreign investment. But there's a difference like, in foreign investing in <laughs> investing in a something that is actually producing uh-huh. goods uh-huh. or services or improving quality of life. But when you're talking about investing, and I'm air quoting here in housing, that is not investment. This is not a productive good. That is not producing jobs. It is not producing goods, services, improving the quality of life. Foreign investing in local businesses, in improving technology, in medicine or automotives or technology is investing. Mm -hmm. But housing is not an investment. It is yeah, a, I've been, I've been saying good. this for years. It's, it's, it's it, make, it, it kind of makes my family's head spin when I say buying a house is not an investment. It's insane to me that we see it that way. Yeah. It's a good, what are you talking a long about? Time. Yeah, when I buy a stock in a company that makes a thing and sells the thing and makes a profit and and then pays me a dividend, some stocks don't even do We could get, go down the whole rabbit hole of stocks that don't pay dividends. And I don't like to touch those because I, be, just because they don't make sense to me. I'm mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? I own this piece of this company and I don't get any, like that's I, whatever. Like, I just don't want that. Like, I like to feel very old school about it. Like mm-hmm. I own a piece of the company. We as a company make the thing. We make the money. I get some of the money. That's business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't want Amazon. They, they, I, like, I don't even get what I'm doing there. It's like I'm investing in script and it's just going to go up. But th- that's a whole other, whole other rabbit hole. But yes, yeah, seeing housing as an investment seems to me to be crazy. And that's cultural though. That's mm-hmm. not fundamental. Like that's a social contract we've created, which is where we started this, this half of the conversation. Yeah. And that, again, even this, this commoditization of social goods is causing cities to be built without beautiful parks, without right. common spaces. And I think that's sad is that if, oh man, I love looking at these designs for especially small American towns that get built mm-hmm. and some city planner would go in and he'd design a city on a map. It's a beautiful grid with symmetrical street layouts and a central park and common meeting grounds and a main street. And it's just this beautiful, it's a, a beautiful city where people go and it was well-maintained. There was caretakers who were paid well and gardens and now i see some modern cities and towns where it's just a collection of commercial interests all around the same place someone buys a farmland on the corner of town and builds just 100 houses that with some streets that barely connect to the existing streets and then someone buys the farm next door and then turns it into some other houses that don't really connect and someone buys the property next door and builds a walmart and you have just these commercial interests that have no integration with society and it's just it's sad to me i think you know the thought occurs to me it's not enough to build a culture right like you know part of me part of me wants to say that this that that this kind of consumerism and, and focus on commodification and and making money is has this kind of cultic Celtic demonic aspect to it. This, this, uh, like, this is a kind of. There is a kind of culture here of like, of seeking after false gods, and yet, like, if it's cultic, it it should be productive of a, of a kind of culture. But like this, <laughs> you're hard pressed to be, even if it's a kind of fall, even if it's a pagan culture, right? Now you know, like after you know, a millennia after the after the uh, confrontation between Christians and pagans, you can look back at pagan culture and say there were some beautiful aspects of it. Mm. What about this consumerist pagan culture is beautiful? If it's cultic, 
even if they're if even if it's a, a demon cult there should be some pr- pr- production of beautiful things shouldn't there mm. it's like my my personal strict. theory is like that. that is that we don't have to bury our kids and that our beds are comfortable and I think that the beds are comfortable thing is a cheeky thing I'm saying, but sort of true. But well, not having yeah. to bury our kids has always struck me as a really, a very quiet and, and never spoken, probably almost never recognized, oh, but tremendous hmm. motivation for what we're doing. We go back to the early days of Christianity. You're burying half your kids by the age yep. of five. Yep. I have three kids expecting to bury none of them. Yeah, Certainly not by the age of five. And, and that is... That is powerful, hmm. powerful as hell. And it's something that I think really drives a lot of what we have to do, what we're doing. We're at, we're at about the hour mark. So I, I want to give us a quick break and then, and then circle back because I know we'll talk forever. Um, yeah. But when we, when we restart, Andrea, I'm going to ask you what you would do at a system level if we gave you all the power <laughs> as an Orthodox Christian. And if you're, you don't have to know, five that's minutes. what I'm going to ask you. So yeah, so, so, so we'll give you five minutes to think about right. it while I, while I take a quick break. All right. See you at the, uh, the other half. Yeah, sounds good. Your support makes this podcast possible. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash men among demons for exclusive content and to join the conversation. All right. Well, so we're back. Uh, and yeah, like I said, Andrew, my question to you, what would you do? You have now been placed in charge of, let's just say Canada, all of Canada. Mm-hmm. You could do anything you want. You could turn this into a communist despotism <laughs> of which you are the supreme leader. You can turn this into a feudalist monarchy where we all go back to just farming and whatever. Uh, you could tweak our system. You can create a whole new system that no one's ever thought of. Ball is in your court. What are you going to do as an Orthodox Christian facing all these problems? Well, the growing up in a in this capitalist system we have, of course, the first thing is well, the grass is always greener. So I, I told Greg once, came like, I think I'm I think I'm becoming a communist. I think I'm becoming a Marxist here. <laughs> oh no! Um, but I don't. This is terrible. He he I tamed don't like me. That. But this is where <laughs> my <laughs> mind first went was like I was seeing I think some of the same issues. And we haven't even talked about all of them that that Marx saw, frankly. Right. And yeah, he yeah. was dissatisfied with with what it was. I've never read Marx, so I'm not an expert in in his his ideologies and his ideas. But I'm familiar with with some of it. Um, I think a, a simpler way of of chipping away at the issues in Canada is to change economic policies in ways that allow incentives to line up with ways that produce better outcomes for all people involved. What I mean by that is I think there are some, um, there are some incentive structures where when I, as an individual or for my family, am making a decision that is going to work for me and going to make me money and make me happy and allow me to be prosperous and successful. It is coming at the cost of people around me. It is a system where we got an example at hand. Yeah. So like you and me, we're people who we have a property, we have a bit of income, we can leverage our assets. Well, I can, I'll buy another house. Great. Like I'm going to have that rental income. This is going to work out great for me. Now, Greg buys an extra house. Andrew buys an extra house. 
all my friends buy one, two, three extra houses. Well, now these properties are worth more to us than they are to people coming up in the system. So you have this is, and this is exactly the problem we face ourselves yeah. in where all of these individual people who are good people, normal people making a rational economic decision for their financial future yeah. is causing economic pain and it's often called a crisis in Canada where people are allowed to make these choices. So my idea, and this is just one would be to add restrictions or change incentive structures in the system so that we can make financial choices that allow more people to prosper. Um, Another one I think of is a lot of people don't get a lot of attention for is like a realtor. So when you're selling a house, my realtor is incentivized to get the highest price possible because he gets a percent commission based mm-hmm. off the sale price, 4%, 5%. He wants that price as high as possible. He's going to yeah. list it high. And that's a part of the reason that's driving the price of houses up is it's a small part has to be because realtors want prices high. Now my realtor, when I'm buying a house, he should be fighting for a lower price for me because he's my agent. He's my representative, but he's also paid a percent. So even though my realtor, he's incentivized for that price to be high as well, even though he's working for me and I want it to be as low as possible. So there's a funny incentive structure, again, related to housing, where all parties involved, except for me as a buyer, are incentivized for this house to sell higher than than it should, driving prices up. The seller and both real estate agents (laughs) are working against the buyer. It's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the, it would be interesting to contemplate what the impact would be to some to find a way to incentivize at least the buyer's agent mm-hmm. to like get more money by the less the house goes for the yeah. more I pay. You. I mean, it might might be something more like a fee type structure or a, an on the side contract that you know I as the buyer have that says you know for every ten thousand dollars we get this down you know I give you five percent of that or ten percent of that instead mm-hmm. of you know for or whatever the numbers that would end up making sense i mean we're just i'm just spitballing but um that, that would be really interesting i mean i wonder if just like just that move would yeah. have had at least some amount of impact on on the ultimate results yeah. in the housing market i was gonna say too like it, it is like i there's always so much complexity because you talk about buying another property and renting it out and it, it strikes me that that's the the morality of doing that is also very complex because many people need to rent. They do not have capital or access to capital to buy a Absolutely. house. And even if houses were a lot cheaper, they, they might not. People have always rent had to rent. They've always been renters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, we Our family was renters for a long, long time. So, I mean, one thing you could maybe retort is to say, well, maybe the Christian doesn't not buy the property. Maybe the Christian goes ahead and buys that property and then commits to trying to charge, you know, as reasonable a fee as they can and not just squeeze it for every penny the market will offer, but say, Hey, I'll, I'll undershoot the market. Um, as long as, you know, as long as I'm not going to bankrupt myself by doing so, like we have a next door neighbor who's, who's basically been doing this, frankly, which she's got a, a, a back, like an alley house and she's got a tenant in there and, and she's telling me, you know, she's such a sweet girl and, and this isn't even coming really from a Christian place. She might be a Christian. I don't even know. Um, but, uh, she's just a sweet girl and she's got, you know, whatever this and that has happened. And I don't know if it's a parent divorce, whatever. And so I just like, I could get a lot more, but you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not worried about it. You know, yeah. I'm just going to give her, give her to her for this price. And that could actually be very, very helpful for that person. Like mm-hmm. they need housing. They can't buy. <clears throat> and maybe just a fair landlord who's not just looking at 
that demon of it's, it struck me in that first half that it's like the demon of mammon at the end of the day it's looking at that alley house and only seeing how many dollars could i get out of it i'm gonna max that out for me for the dollars you could say, instead say I'm going to get something. I'm going to get rent because I do have, you do have costs as a landlord. Absolutely. It isn't a completely, they are including labor costs. My, my brother-in-law owns some rental properties in the Detroit area and he works a lot, man. He is spending every Saturday and Sunday, basically all day at those properties, maintaining this, taking care of that, painting this, fixing that. You replace the stove when it goes, you're replacing the washer and dryer. So there are a lot of costs and there is labor. So you got to recoup some of that. There's there's the capital cost you got to recoup. But you could look at it and say, I'm going to make sure that I kind of break even on that or maybe even make a little bit of money. But I'm also going to add to the mix care for my tenants mm-hmm. and the concern for the broader community to try to be a little piece of not just pushing rents up as high as they can possibly go, not trying to create a society where everyone is leveraged to the absolute eyeballs just to rent a home. Um, and I think you could make an argument that maybe, well, maybe that's what all all Christians with money should do. We should all, in fact, go out and precisely buy every <laughs> rental property we possibly can. Own the world. And then, and then be yes. decent landlords about it, right? right. Like, yeah. but, but I, like, I'm not saying that that's obviously yeah, the solution. Yeah, yeah. Like, maybe we should never buy rental property. I'm not, I'm, so yeah, I'm not ready to say that renting is evil or shouldn't exist. Yeah. I'm yeah. not ready to go that far. But there is... And maybe I'm leaning more towards the economic side than the the religious faithful side, but there's the thing is that there's an incorrect mix right now in the system where it's become mm, yeah. too good to turn down the opportunity of having a rental property, and home ownership rates in Canada are lower than they've been for decades. People who quote unquote should own houses can't afford to anymore. Yeah. We've been, but maybe we we're just lied to in the post-war era. Like this era oh, where yeah, I, I think that's a big thing because I think we, we, we were have... given this promise that was not realistic. Because one thing that occurs to me too is that when we see new developments, certainly this is happening here in Hamilton, there are hardly ever are those apartment buildings. And a lot of the people who advocate for more affordable housing around here, what they get angry about is that every new every new build is condos, hmm. and they're like, we got all these people who can't buy anything, and they need housing. And what we want to see is a whole whack of apartment buildings go up. That's right. what we want. We want tons of rental units available because at least then people are housed. And that's more important. I mean, it would be the case being made here. That's far to be housed is far more important than to be the owner of that home. That's right. a kind of like North American dream thing right. that maybe doesn't really matter. Much yeah, maybe, maybe it doesn't. Because that's where I was just kind of going to this conversation saying people should own houses. But maybe that's just a lie. Like that's something we've been told since the 40s, the 50s when the explosion of or the invention of suburbia in the United States right. and Canada. And you said this American dream where dad goes to work and brings home the money and mom stays home with the kids and you have your house and your two cars like that idea. Maybe it was just never sustainable. Like yeah. our grandparents had it well, like my grandparents, my parents lived off of that. And now I'm doing well based off of their success. But it seems other people my age whose parents didn't do as well or they're feeling a real pinch because all we've been told is that we can have a country of millions and millions of people and keep bringing in millions of people. And we're all going to have a house, have two cars, have one and a half kids. And, and the more we're looking at it now, we're, you know, as we look at our budgets every month, like, okay, now something that started since the 1560s, okay, mom's working now and we still don't have enough money. 
and we're having less kids now we're having right. one kids no kids still not enough money yeah like what's changed that like the overall average prosperity of a family is so much it seems to be getting worse oh yeah like it sure feels that way yeah well i, I think the statistics back that up oh I yeah mean, and, and and we we kind of we swept it under the rug for several decades by turning everyone into a two-income household mm-hmm. that was a way of suppressing real wage growth real wage growth has been virtually Stagnant. nil yep. for decades totally but stagnant. a big part of what happened is every single family like at an individual basis is not collectively or this is not planned but it, basically every single family was like well wages just aren't growing what are we going to do well honey once you get a job and mm-hmm. then we all kind of fix the problem for a while by doing everybody goes and does that now we've got two incomes that so we're okay and now we're starting to run into the brick wall of like that even that's not working anymore well it, uh, like and i have to think like kind of back to earlier moments of the conversation like it's starting the 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 realization is starting to come up uh, which is scary about about the the value proposition of um well frankly slavery hmm. like why do cultures why why was slavery like an intractable aspect of culture for so long we think of it from the other way around it's like if i if if we've got a little family of 5 as we do and Gosh darn it! Like I do not make as much money as my dad did at his age. That has gone down, and the cost of my house is probably two and a half times what what it was. And that's for then you're doing pretty good. And I'm doing okay. I have a house, and both both my wife and I work, and we're and we're doing fine, right? We're doing okay. But it's like those grocery bills keep coming up. Blah 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 blah. And it's like you know, whatever. It's you're seeing the pressures like. It does not take a real stretch of the imagination to think like, what if we were both working as we are and making as much money as we could as work like we're in the ballpark. There's not there's not a huge ceiling on on uh, and room to grow up for for how much money each of us could make in terms of our qualifications and so forth. What if we all what if we increasingly just found that was literally not enough that we cannot continue to keep like by you know you can you can pull back on your food expenses eat more beans and rice we're already not going spending a lot on entertainments we're already not going out to eat very much if we had a massive spike in in our housing costs like if we had a variable mortgage fortunately mm-hmm. we just locked in this summer before everything went uh, or last the last summer before everything really went haywire right. we we got a good uh, uh, uh we locked in at a 5 year mortgage before the Bank of Canada started raising interest rates. But if we had a variable mortgage and things were just, and all of a sudden our mortgage cost was double, like you can start to imagine how like we were both working max. Right. We're making what we can make and we literally cannot afford, like imagine being able to ha- have someone who provide room and board take care of those basic financial responsibilities that we are just not able to to do and but and and we just and we just work for them for no no wage we're not making any money sucks to be yeah. us but at least our costs are covered like you start yeah, to that's see where like, that's where serfdom and all of european slavery right. precisely came from north american exactly. slavery which is the part of the african slave trade is totally, a, a yeah. very very different story 
yeah, like unrelated. Like we're almost using the same word for two completely different right. social phenomenon, phenomena. So maybe we could talk about serfdom in this context that instead of slavery, I mean, even uh-huh. though they really are the same, but um, in certain ways they're the same, but in certain ways they're sort of crucially different. So serfdom across Eastern Europe will lasted all the way into the 19th century. This is exactly 100% what happened every time. You sold yourself into serfdom because you just couldn't survive. And maybe you hope to like- anymore in a few years be able to pay off that pay that off you hope and, you may and buy you your hope. freedom again or buy your freedom right. for your kids again right. but or something yeah, like but that you don't <laughs> and so or it goes generation to generation generation but that's precisely the motivation it's exactly what happened mm-hmm. and somebody who does have the resources says well if you just come work for me i'll keep you in the family alive i'll give you what you need to be alive and and, and then everything else goes to me and all your labor goes to me and people go i'll take it yeah. rather than just that's dying right. here This is not, it's not a stretch of the imagination. Like I say, like I'm no, no complaints or anything, but it's like, it doesn't take much to imagine, like, well, imagine we just made a few thousand bucks a month less or so, or what a year less or whatever. It's like that you could, you could tweak this or this or things could go wrong. And it feels like everything's going wrong in Canada these days. Right. So it's like, you know, a few stars have to go out of alignment and it's like, I, you could, you could sell me on the idea actually pretty quickly. And families like yours. <laughs> Where you have, like you said, two parents working, good, like white collar jobs, yep. like working for the universities. Like these are good paying jobs, union jobs. Yeah, three for her, not for me. But yeah. No, but in general, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, but three kids. Like the government wants us to be having more kids, and you're saying we can barely get by. It should be and a like slam and this dunk. is in the, the cheapest city in Canada. Yeah, like we're in the as good as it gets is in Winnipeg or yeah. the prairies here. It's it's wild that like something is wrong like you said with our incentive structures and it kind of leads me to to scream at the sky like where's all the money going like how do we have like we the system should be able to work like shouldn't it shouldn't we be able to have all us people work together all contribute things all contribute our talents and have enough to feed each other like or is that a lie i don't know but that's that's what i'm screaming is like where's the money going how come this was working 10 years ago maybe it wasn't but it was working better what changed between now and 10 years ago that all of a sudden i I think you're you're totally right incentives and downward pressures have been rolled back and so you have an essential demonic force at the heart of everything which is mammon Mm -hmm. uh, and and a, a bunch of key a bunch of key downward pressures have been rolled back the the genius of North America, this is just me talking as an amateur historian of this period, professional historian of other periods. The genius of 20th century North America was the, the genius of the labor union, which was a mechanism for preserving, seems to me, preserving capitalism and the free market while creating a very substantive and very powerful downward pressure to increase what you had to pay people without coming in and saying, we're going to have communism and we're going to become totalitarian and all, which comes with all sorts of terrors of its own. And is a totally, it's a different, but very, very powerful demon. Uh, And labor unions were then and remain to this day, 
extremely corrupt in all sorts of ways. But one of the key things they did was to say, hey, that guy working at that Ford plant, you know, the Rouge plant, Greg and I toured there, the, the current Rouge plant it not so too cool. long ago. And it was so cool. It was really interesting to watch. It was, you know, it was, it was a promo for Ford, but it's really interesting to watch, you know, what was happening at that plant in like the 1930s and the 40s. He had 100,000 yeah. people. Wow working there a hundred thousand people and when you when they are all unionized and they're all saying we're gonna walk if you don't give us that rage that creates a (laughs) profound downward pressure to say well ford motor can't just make all the money it can possibly make we are going to demand through brute force that more of that money than would just go to us if we if no one said anything is going to go to us gosh darn it and i think that that bailed out capitalism for many, many decades in the 20th century in North America, the power, not that everyone was unionized, but there was a period of time where something like 40 or 50% of American workers were, right. were in some kind of a union. That's profound pressure. And then that radiates out because now even the people right. who aren't in the union benefit because now you got to compete with those unions. Right. So, so kind of everybody wins. And unions have been completely kneecapped. Mm-hmm. They're you know, they're gone. They're not in the places we need them. They're still in the places we don't really need them anymore. Right. right. Oh, and yeah. uh, that's a whole kettle of fish we could talk about. <laughs> but, and that's just one example. And I'm not saying that like unions get all the credit or something, but it's an example of a really key downward pressure and a key uh, incentive structure, which is what you're talking about, Andrew, that incentivize or forced is maybe the better word. Uh, some of that money down in the system. Yeah. And that was a win for basically everybody. Henry Ford himself knew this even before the union thing. His philosophy was to pay the highest wages he could because he wanted his, his workers to be customers too. He kind of right. got it. It's like, if everybody gets richer, I sell more cars. Right? Right, right. Like he sort of get, and we feel, I feel like we've completely lost that. Now it's just like, I'm going to suck up as much as I can. And you see these tech companies come along and say, here's what I'm going to, I'm going to make a billion dollars by replacing a hundred billion dollars worth of labor. I get crazy rich, but now you know ninety nine billion dollars is out of the system. But I'll, I, it's like a contest. It's like I'll <clears throat> I'll do that. I will suck up ninety nine billion dollars out of the system, clear it off, as long as you just give me ten percent of that. Because for me, I'm, now I'm filthy, stinking rich, and it's it's the whole the whole system has become like that. It seems. It does seem like there's a bit of a theme of of anti-locality, right? That just to go back to what you were saying before, Andrew, in terms of like incentivizing you, what, what you want is for, for, for moves that you make for you and your family uh, to, you know, to sort of better, better yourselves to not be predatory against the other people in your community, yeah. actually to kind of, to somehow incentivize so that when you do something for yourself, it acts. The benefits actually radiate right. out instead of it being kind of parasitic. Yeah. Uh, and here too, I mean, it's like that 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 shift to post Fordism, where where it's you know the economy isn't so much of us making things; it's doing its into uh, so called intellectual work that can be farmed out overseas and so forth in order to make a buck. Like there's a delocalization of the economy that I think is an undercurrent here. Um, and is he like it even ties into the the stuff we were talking about with with David Graeber before and everything like lending lending works and 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 lending and borrowing works at a local level the commands of Christ and the commands of the of the of uh, the Christian scriptures all assume that you're lending and borrowing because and, and giving and taking because that's what communities do and then gives you an orientation to to be like 
exactly what we're saying. Like lend, but don't do it pred in a predatory way. Don't don't lend and then be willing to destroy your mm. neighbor if they can't pay it back. And borrow. Sometimes you gotta borrow, but don't just be borrowing to get it. Like there's a kind of locality. It assumes a kind of locality. It assumes that, like Dan, in your own example from your own life, that you know the people. That you're where well, you're walking right next to them. That this is not not this isn't like you. This is your family, not in the sense of your wife and kids, but in the sense of your tribe, in the sense that you and I are family, in the sense that Andrew and I are family, because we go to the same church, because he because he calls me Father Deacon, because we it's, because we are because we're in communion with one another, and seeing each other regularly. I mean, I think that's it's embodied, right? Yeah, it's embodied, and if we're in an Orthodox church, this is happening within an Orthodox parish. It's embodied in the chalice. We are a one body. We're like we're one person. We're one single person. And you wouldn't say to to your right hand, uh, your right hand wouldn't say to your left hand, "Hey, you know, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna you know, let some blood flow into you so you can get your nutrients, but you're gonna owe that back to me yeah. big time, and to the mm-hmm. point that I'll let you die as long as I get what I want. That's insanity. The body cutting is off your nose, of all. all yeah. need, every part needs its own. That's why that's St. Paul's analogy there of the church as a body is 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 just so beautiful in so many different contexts. And this is, this is one where if we treat each other as a body, I don't see that other parishioner. I don't see my friend as someone like they're a different person, but they're part of me. They're part of this bigger thing. They're part of that body of Christ. And I want them to be healthy. And that's my core motivation. So if I give them some money, maybe they give it back, but how the health of the body, I don't win if they're, homeless that's right. now mm. because of what i did when i lent them that money yeah that's right that's me that's just that's my my left hand letting my right hand letting my left hand die off yeah it's it's insane and i don't think you can do that it's we've talked a lot in this show we come back to this a lot in this show about how demonic forces love the disembodied right they love to disembody things and this whole capitalist structure seems like a disembodiment of that. When I buy a GIC, which is a very prudent investment, right, for mm-hmm. me these days, you can get a decent return on them too right now. What am I really doing? I'm lending money to somebody I don't even know. They are so disembodied from me. They are like several layers of financial instrument away from me. It could be somebody's mortgage in Sacramento who owes me you know, some little bit of money. It's like a derivative of a derivative of a derivative that goes into the GIC. And, you know, that money is now sort of owed to me. They're disembodied. I, I couldn't even know who they were. It couldn't I possibly wanted. trace it. Even if and I have no it. mechanism to say, you know, that guy in Sacramento, I know he just lost his job. Like, I can't just call the GIC manager and be like, ah, let's just, let's let, you know, let's just go easy on yeah. him. I'll take a little haircut. <laughs> It's like, right. I don't need the 27 cents that he technically sort of owes me. Um, forget it, right? Like, I can't. If I wanted to, I couldn't. This is totally disembodied. Yeah, and that goes to another thing we haven't even touched on, which is the like the ethics and morality of even us saying investing, even when yeah. we're doing, oh, put a bit in my RSP or buy into the S&P 500 and you'll get a good return. It's like, what are we supporting with our money? We're just throwing our money in here and all I see is, hey, every two months it goes up by 5%. That's good. Yeah. Okay, well, you're supporting 
uh, evil companies that are exploiting labor around the world, the companies that are exploiting our planets, exploiting like everything, gun manufacturing, supporting war, like all kinds of things we may or may not support. I like supporting the tobacco companies. Evil tobacco companies. I like tobacco. Well, yeah, like there is a whole ethical, (laughs) there's this this whole ethical movement in in investing, like ethical investments and blah, blah, blah. But usually what that means is not supporting or whatever. In my my sort of my work context, what that usually means is not supporting oil companies. Right. Like it's it's like a pro-environmental. I find find that so naive. I get so frustrated with that. I know. Because like, oh, well, I'm going to buy stock in this other company because they're more, they're using energy yeah yeah so like I, whatever how much does that's, it even matter yeah. if i own the company that sells them the energy or own the company that consumes the energy am i like causing the earth to I, and and these days with some of that ethical <laughs> investing it's like it's so much smoke and mirrors oh well we do actually this, 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 this and it just like seems like this big rhetorical mm. game uh, yeah like i almost weirdly feel more comfortable being like i'm just gonna buy stock in an oil company i'm gonna face up to it i'm gonna own it this is what we're all doing i'm doing it every day when i drive my car when i heat my home when I eat my food, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna effing buy the stock in the oil company, <laughs> and just stand in front of my Lord and Savior and be like, well, at least I wasn't bullshitting myself and everyone around me. <laughs> now maybe that's not right, but like it's a thought that crosses my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have personally owned stocks in oil companies in the past. Yeah. On this thing, yeah. I don't think I do right now, but I don't fully manage my portfolio anymore. <laughs> but uh, which goes right back to the same point. But, but like, yeah, I mean deluding ourselves seems to me to be also spiritually fraught to Mm. think that you can look at this system and like find the way to do it right. Right. You know, like I don't like that either because then we lose the spiritual value of recognizing like, look how fallen this world is and look at ourselves. We are part of it. We are Mm. always part of it. And we have got to fall on our knees in front of our Lord and savior and ask his forgiveness and ask for his salvation because we cannot earn our way there's the, this it's a kind of financial pelagianism like if i just try really hard yeah. and buy the right instruments i'll be okay i'll be morally pure and i want to scream no you're not you're not and maybe it's worse for you spiritually to think you can accomplish that that's hmm. the real works righteousness <laughs> buying right? ethical stocks <laughs> well, yeah. but i mean but like i say all that but like Certainly, if you put two companies in front of me and said, Dan, which of these stocks would you like to own? And I felt, and one of them was, you know, I don't know, a company that sells arms to whatever armies and that are fighting civil wars in Africa. And the other one is a company that, you know, is a green energy company that builds wind energy. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to pick the wind energy company. Uh, but what if the I, I'd rather works? invest in something that I think? Yeah. Well, how much? How much worth? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a question. Like, <laughs> what are we talking about here? <laughs> I'll think of a haircut. Because the returns are probably worse. Yeah. Like right? the right. people selling guns to war criminals in Africa this are doing is, just uh, fine. Uh, lucrative business. And the whole. Green energy might not be going anywhere, so I don't know what to say. And might like, I bring fine. this up because like even like my banking apps, like Wealth Simple, is a popular new startup in Canada, has an option for halal investing mm. and for 
green investing, like mm-hmm. these these That's ethical just investing. Click of a button, probably. I looked at the portfolios. It's kind of interesting. Like yeah. I, didn't, I didn't see any pork producers on there, but uh, otherwise, As the halal investing wasn't a, didn't totally surprise me. Right. There was no big arms company, but I saw you know Coca Cola and the big banks and Microsoft yeah. and you know these kind of companies that are just going to do well. I'm like this is a lot more average than I expected. Interesting. Because there's just there aren't huge profitable companies that are explicitly religious right? because we're not trying to make money off of each other. Well, yeah, I don't think there can really no. kind of can't be at the end of the day. What, what we do within this economy is going to, is going to cut against the grain of our ideals at the end of the day as Christians. Like, and I don't, I don't, where I start to get, where I was kind of coming from in that little spiel a mm-hmm. minute ago is that I don't know that there's a way out of that. I, right. It sometimes seems to me like that's the nature of the fallen world. And like the problem with the communist idea is it's just the same thing as I was just kind of talking about, but even larger. And the communist idea is that, well, we can fix it with the right system. Communism trades some of, some of these issues. In practice, not even that many, but maybe some of these issues. And it, then, but then what it trades them for is an, a whole other suite of demonic forces. It, it seems to me that the problem with communism is that it can it is not compatible with freedom. Communism requires that everybody be participating in the system the way we scripted it. And if you don't, and if you won't, and if you object, we will first try to brainwash you. And if that doesn't work, we will kill you. That's what communist regimes do because they have to. They have to. And it's actually fundamental to the communist idea. It's not incidental. People run around and say, well, we could have democratic communism. We could have communism and liberal values. And I say, no, you can't. Because if you make Canada communist, but you let me walk around saying, this is bullshit, I don't want this. You let me walk around saying, I refuse to participate in your communist project. You have a crisis. You can't even really let one person do that. You certainly can't let 40% of society just say, no, we won't participate. Communism needs everybody to cooperate. Communism can't tolerate. True, true communism would be me walking into the dentist being like, I need some dental work. Just do it for me. And the dentist walking into the grocery store and saying, I need a loaf of bread. Just give it to me. That's your pure communism, right? You can't do that if you, if you don't have 100%. You can't have one single grocer saying, no, no, I won't just give it to you. I want you to give me something else, right? I want you to give me mm-hmm. a little piece of paper that says I can get dental work, or I want you to give me a couple of black market dollars, or I want you to give me a shiny rock, whatever. One single grocer doing that, it falls apart. So you have to brainwash or kill that grocer. And so communism collapses, collapses the capacity for human freedom. And we, when the Soviet Union fell, we saw this. Gorbachev wanted to introduce liberal freedoms of speech and thought and keep communism. And it instantaneously went away because all of a sudden everyone can run around and be like, this is awful. Let's get rid of this. And now the system goes bang, right down. That's why you need all of the censoring. That's why you need the brainwashing. That's why you need the murder to keep everybody in line. So you've traded one demon for what to me seems like, frankly, an even scarier and more awful demon. It's a very, very, very violent demon. The genius of capitalism is that it can shrug. If someone's like, I don't want to participate in capitalism, man. You know, I'm just going to go live in the woods. We'll, we're like, all right, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> it's not, I don't really care.
there. That's right. And, and in uh, fact, it can it can absorb it as a new interest group to try to sure. sell things to. <laughs> right. Right. That's very good. Which is that. its own like that's that's its own problem. Like there's not a single thing that we take for for as as valuable as Orthodox Christians that those that this world isn't trying to repackage and sell back to us in one way or another. Right. So there's like there is a real temptation even to to take anything that that all of all of our efforts to to sell but yeah on balance like it seems it seems like a preferable problem to have but it doesn't mean it's not a problem so but i'm not doesn't mean it's not, not a problem. i hope i'm not coming off as like some yeah, rah no, rah right. about our system because our system has so many profound mm. demonic forces i mean it's very it's not a christian system that we live in and but my question is is it can it possibly be or is it just a situation where we take least bad options we do what we can and we just repent. And then we try to build communities in our parishes that operate closer to the ideal, try to shine that light in the world, give each other that 500 bucks and don't expect necessarily to get it back and do these little things in those little embodied spaces that actually do exist, that still exist. And then look around us and just frankly, just repent, buy the stock and repent. It's sort of like Basil on, on soldiers killing in, in war. It's like, you're a soldier. Mm. You're going to have to do it. Probably it's part of your job. And we have to have soldiers. We can't just not have soldiers. Cause now, now we just have whatever they, you know, the, the, the Islamic empire just takes over and they're going to have, so, so soldiers are going to exist. But if you've gone according to St. Basil and you've killed somebody as a soldier, uh, you're excommunicated. You're out of communion for three years. You repent, you do it. You have to do it. And you repent for it mm. also. Sometimes I just think that's that's kind of all we can do in this capitalist right. system. But I, like, I'm not a total. I think there are improvements we could make. I really appreciate what oh, you're yeah. saying, like and I, changing and, incentive structure. And we we pray for our leaders in every liturgy, and we have to because I think there's there's only so far we as a community. We have a very small community, and in Canada, we have basically no voice as Orthodox Christians in Canada. So no, like our influence, our ideas that we discuss here or at our ecumenical councils have no influence on the decisions that are made broadly for this country, but we have no power to change these things apart from these governments. Like us, we can help a single family in our parish and barely we can help this Mm -hmm. one single family, but there are dozens of people suffering and dying, literally dying every day in Canada because they are not getting the help they need. That can't be provided by donations. It can only be funded as as the current structures are built by governments, by taxation. Ultimately, the government is an extension of us in a democratic society. It is an extension of us citizens and our will. But I think it feels like the government is not exercising the will of the people. It's exercising a different kind of will that is benefiting some people, but leaving a whole lot of people behind. Yeah. And a lot of people are checking out of democracy right now. A lot of people voting is low percent because people feel like, what's the point? Even when I vote in Mm -hmm. the right team colors to say they're going to help me out, life is still still getting worse. But we we can't just give up, though, because like I said, I think 10 years ago, things were better. So why can't we go back to when it was better or or other countries that have better health care or more fair home prices or better wages or an average quality of life that's better than Canada. I think it can be better, but 
how do we get there? I don't know. We've, we've gone. I, I often wonder how big I, I would love if there's some way for us to measure how big the impact of the decline of Christianity is mm. on these issues in a place like Canada. Because if you look, if you go back 50 years, but, or even 10, 20, 30, you know, who are the people who go and build a homeless shelter to just provide shelter, especially during the winter to people who've run out of options? It's the Christians. You know, where, what's the biggest shelter in Hamilton? Good Shepherd. It's run by Christians. It's funded by Christians. I give the money as a Christian. There are fewer and fewer of those people around. And it's not exclusive to Christianity. Islam has a very strong charitable right. giving tradition as well. But religiosity in general in Canada is on the decline. And to my mind, that has got to impact charitable giving. And that has got to have an impact. The, the hospitals of this country were mostly built by Christians, educational mm. institutions. And yeah, the homeless shelters, the soup kitchens. These were things that Christians did. And I think we leaned a lot for a long time on the assumption that there's always going to be all kinds of Christians around who are willing to say, yeah, yeah, I'll give a few hundred bucks a year uh, to the soup kitchen so that the people who've got no other choice can go and at least eat and at least get a roof over their head for tonight. And we have fewer and fewer and fewer of those people. And maybe part of the solution for us as Christians is to just try to keep the flame burning as much as we can. You know, we're so maligned these days by the secularists. But yeah. it's like, I feel like we're paying the piper in a lot of ways as we look around. Like if you're just an atheist, just looking out for you know living your best life or whatever, are you giving money? Some of them, I'm sure, give some money to the soup mm -hmm. kitchen. To me, that's a legacy of Christianity. But, but it's got to be less than the people who go every single Sunday, whether it's an Orthodox church or any other church, and hear somebody tell them, you need to worry about feeding the homeless who are out there in Hamilton. Somebody tells me that in some way. The liturgy tells me that in some way. Every Sunday, I get reminded. And if I detach myself from that, I'm sure I would give a lot less money. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. to those kinds of causes than I do. And that's got to, you, you magnify that over millions of people over the course of decades, it's got to have a tangible impact. Like, it's interesting to connect that with, uh, with the earlier, I'm just thinking back to the, the point I was making earlier about, about this cult of, this cult of mammon, this cult of um, consumerism as being a kind of cultless cult, a cultless cult, a cult and thus a mm. cultureless cult. Mm. And, and exactly as a result, eroding. Yeah, like it's, it, and then, and then this, this is what happens. Like when you lose all cult and culture, um, and not all cult and culture is, has the capacity to feed the homeless, right? This is a, this is a principal point of criticism. And, and, uh, in, you know, in this, in the so-called, so to speak, conversation between Christianity and paganism, right? Christians were... Christians came on the scene and 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 fed, uh, fed and whole uh, and housed and clothed the homeless in ways that uh, that had not been seen before. Um. But yeah, like our society has was is clearly. I mean, I think historically it's fairly demonstrable that it's it's been built on the presumption that people are being morally formed in 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 what are fundamentally Christian ways. It's presuming Christian moral formation. Or at least religious. Right. And, and having lost that, we are, we are no longer capable of, of, yeah, no longer capable of maintaining these institutions that, that we say are important, but, but don't, don't get the moral formation to actually keep running. 
Because well, we look to the government. But like, I mean, the last yeah, couple right. months, there's there's been a particular woman who's emailed the parish and gotten a hold of me and said, "Hey, I'm just struggling so much and I can't make groceries this month." And each time I've said, "Hey, you know, come on down um, Sunday after church. Come to church if you want." Um, and yeah, we'll get we'll sling you a couple of gift cards to help out, yeah. just to help out. And is that is that changing the world writ large? No, but it's one life. That's a bit better. And as church after church after church closes its doors, this is what you used to do. You used to get yourself in that kind of a spot and you go, hey, I mean, she's not a member of the church. She's right. just some person. But you, you knock on a church door and say, yeah, this is a church. M- maybe they can give me 50 bucks worth of gift cards to go buy some beans and some rice. So I can put something on the table tonight for me and my daughter, right? Um, and when more and more and more of those church doors is closed and more of those communities are empty, that has to impact. It has to. As as evil as they say we are, mm. you know. Yeah, I was almost thinking of like counterexamples where we have countries in the world that have seen a much sharper decline in Christianity, mm. but still maintain a higher overall mm. standard of living. I think of like the Nordic countries are an mm. easy example, but even Japan, which never really had a significant Christian population, has a pretty good standard of living overall for people, low rates of homelessness, low rates of, of poverty, of, of starvation. Well, I've, I've, I have read not too long ago that Japan just completely hides its homeless okay. problem. If, in, all right. In its statistics. <laughs> If that's the case, uh, then, I, I then don't it's know working. how true it is, but it's it's well, yeah. But yeah. I, it was it was I, I ran into an article that was okay. actually pointing precisely this problem that Japan's like basically it was effectively arguing that Japan's reported rates of homelessness are just fiction. All right, right? like I'm willing to be corrected. Which you end up yeah. with, like, because there are a lot of people in Japan. Just for example, one of the examples that you used was there's a lot of people who live in cyber cafes in Japan. Mm. Right, they just go rent okay. a little booth. And it's, you know, it's for, for 10 hours each night, they don't have a home, but they can, they can come up with, and these are often people working people with right. real jobs, mm-hmm. but they have no home, they have no address. And so every single night they go rent 10 hours at, you know, an online, a cyber cafe where you get a little room of your own with a computer in it and they can go in there and they're not, you know, they'll use the computer, but they're not there. They're not there to, to pay for internet access. They're there to pay for a roof. And there's a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. This is what it was saying. There's a lot of that going on in Japan or you have people just crammed into these absolutely minuscule, you know, we wouldn't even think of them as homes, but so none of these people get recorded. Yeah. Right. Uh, is what I was saying. So a lot of it is a, maybe a bit of culture, sure. which doesn't mean your point no, is totally but, invalid. But. And the different way I was kind of going to go, even discussing the Nordic countries is how they've had a completely different relationship with the church, those governments right. where government and church were, were and are to this day, one in the same organization. Yeah. Your yeah. churches are directly funded by the government, yes, not by yeah. charitable donation. Charitable donation is not, a thing like it is in Canada. Our churches you are just pay it, you pay it in your taxes. Exactly. And then those taxes also go towards the the goods that the churches would provide here, whether that's the charity and whatnot, the welfare. Um but maybe those governments, these countries have had such a different relationship with the church and with poverty and the needy that the government filling that need as what has maybe been a, a contributor to the atrophy of the church itself yeah. has been the church not having that need to fulfill its duty when it's not on the always seeing the needs when the needs are being fulfilled by the government. I don't know yeah. if that's true. No, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You just pay your, you pay your tax mm-hmm. 
as a Lutheran who hasn't been to church in 40 years, but doesn't quite want to go through the hassle of declaring that you're not a Lutheran to get, to get out of it. Um, and I think Germany even still works this way. You have, there's a bunch of paperwork you have to do just to declare that you're not a Lutheran anymore. And so you don't owe those taxes anymore. Hmm. Um, and a lot of people will just sit there and be like, ah, it's fine, you know, whatever. And so you're almost just kind of forcing instead of in Canada, we've always done it voluntarily. Like I give yeah. to my church if I want, and I never, it's never been done through the government, but there it was and still is to this in 2023, oh, yeah. still done by the government. And I think you're right. That probably um, contributes tremendously to spiritual atrophy, but you do still get, you're still kind of forcing a lot of people to contribute to the right. to the social project of the church of you know making society less awful. But and these countries have seen, and as long as the numbers I'm seeing on paper are are true, are seeing a better overall quality of life for yeah. their citizens, even amidst the total collapse of of participatory Christianity in these countries. It's essentially a fundamental collapse in these modern yeah. countries, but still seeing a quality of life. So I don't know. I in, it's just they're following a different route than Canada, where we've just had a fundamentally different relationship with the the church and the state. So we need a state church in Canada and force everybody to either go through a whole bunch of legal loopholes and uh, well, and get out of it, or they're just going to have to pay their taxes and buy gum. That's going to be the Orthodox church. Do charity. Right. It's going to be the Orthodox. There we go. <laughs> OCA particularly. All right. Fixed it. <laughs> we won't get corrupt that way. No. I don't see any issues. Still give us no, no, no problem. Nothing to the Greeks. Nothing to Rokor. Nothing to <laughs> just OCA. <laughs> yeah. it, it is interesting because they really that's that's really what they do. It's. Uh, it's quite something. Yeah. What a morass, eh, fellas? It does, uh, yeah. Like, and, and it's uh, not without significant risks, right? Exactly to that spiritual atrophy. Mm-hmm. We're already thinking like how much, how much risk is it for us to be, be giving uh, donations and tithes to like electronically instead of putting money in the, in the right. collection plate, you know, never mind like the church being funded through taxation. It's like you're completely dissociated from, from, from what it, from what it costs to keep the community going. Mm. It's a, it's a real anti-localization really feels like it. Yeah. Well, thanks to the capitalist system, we are going to get cut off in 13 minutes. So before that happens, (laughs) because our recording platform is now going to a profit model. uh, They want, they want the money. They don't, they don't care about the creation of our podcast. They want the dollars and good, Couldn't they cut us a break? Well, could they? So with with, with that, now we're down to 12 minutes. With that in mind... What would, what would you say, so the, the motto of this show, and we haven't returned to it in quite a while on an episode. Is, so if we truly put Christ at the center of our thinking on this individual, we've talked a lot, it's very important, about the kind of broad social question or policy types questions and, and just a few little examples. But what, what, the, what do the two of you think we would do if we put Christ at the center of our thinking, living in Canada the way it is right now? What should we do starting tomorrow? Something that comes immediately to mind is just thinking, bringing Christ to mind with every way that we use our money. And like the reason I kind of think of that is something I heard from, I think it was Jimmy Aiken, who is a, a Catholic podcaster. And he was asked on his radio show from a, a listener about 
how much money they should give to the Catholic Church. They grew up Protestant. They knew my tithe is 10%. And they she wanted to know how much should I give the Catholic Church now that I'm a Catholic. And his answer was, well, you should give 100% of your money to God. Mm. And obviously that elicited a bit of confusion. But the idea being all of your money, everything you are, everything you have belongs to God. So for the single mom who is can barely pay rent and feed her kids, she doesn't give anything formally to her Catholic church because 100% of her money is going to God already through raising her children. So it was an idea for me of when I, what I kind of took out of that was every transaction is, is this glorifying God? When I'm saving for my retirement, does that glorify God? When I'm buying expensive food instead of economical food or raising kids or if I'm deciding I want to live a life of having nice cars and video game systems and nice house instead of having kids, is that glorifying God? Because kids are expensive and I'm going to make a whole lot of trade-offs if I decide to live a life with a wife and single as opposed to having kids. Which, which way is glorifying God? So mm-hmm. it's it's a, a cop-out to say, well, just think about God and make the right choice. But I think you can apply it in a lot of ways that all of what you are, all of what you earn is to glorify God and, and to bring Christ to the center of that. So I don't know. It's, it's easy to say, and it's really, really difficult to live by because I make yeah. a lot of foolish decisions with my money every right. day. It's hard. It's like everything around yeah, us yeah, is yeah. telling us greed, greed, consume, consume. You deserve it. It's yours. Yeah, and it's well. It's hard to know too what exactly glorifies God. It's true. Like, I think, yeah. yeah. For example, you know, we have we have a, a small but but very nice and very comfortable house, and one of the things we have is a, a really very lovely backyard. It's not huge, but it it's just it's a lovely space, and I love having that lovely backyard that we paid a bunch of money for. <laughs> and the reason I most love it is to, especially in the summertime, have people from church, our friends from church, over mm-hmm. for Sunday dinner. And when they come over for Sunday dinner, I will go and buy expensive foods and I will serve them uh, to my, my thinking is to build the community, to help us connect. Uh, when you come to my house for Sunday dinner, you're going to get a nice glass of wine in front of you. You're going to get a, you know, whatever, usual, a, a beautiful beef brisket that cooked all day on my grill and created carbon footprint by doing so. <laughs> And it's good. You're going to finish up with a, a dessert and a, a glass of very good scotch or a, a dram of very good scotch. Uh, promise you. So come on over sometime. I and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel good about that. Right? It's like you could look at that and say that's superfluous. We we could all just sit there and eat a bowl of beans and a hunk of bread, uh, and we could all and we could do it in mm. some you know very 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 stripped down like crummy apartment. But um, it, you know. <laughs> I like using those resources to build our connection, to build our love for each other and to express that love. I think sometimes I've visited monasteries before and and the cooks, I I think often about the, the way that the cooks at the monastery are in a sense, fundamentally at odds with the pilgrims and the monks, because often you'll go to some of these monasteries, like on Mount Athos, some of the most incredible food I've ever eaten is on the non-fasting day in Monathos where the cooks just, and they are so good at what they do. And they've made this beautiful dish and with so much care. And they're doing that to express their love. And then they put it in front of these monks who wolf it down as fast as they can because they don't want to enjoy it. 
And it, it's funny, right? Like, but it kind of makes sense to me, right? Like, but, so my motivation is to show you my love through this kind of uh, celebratory, not, not absolutely nutritionally necessary, but celebratory, beautiful thing, that extra expenditure. Um, but, you know, then it comes with its own temptations. But if we do nothing but wear sackcloth and I, it, when you come to my house, all you get is beans and rice and we live in the tiniest possible space we could possibly get, that's not going to build the community the same way. You're, you know, like <laughs> it's, I, I, what, well, I guess I'm just trying to say is that it's not that there's no place for feasting in the right. Orthodox church. It's not that there's no place to celebrate. It's not that there's no place to enjoy our creative lives. There has to be. That's, it wouldn't be Christianity to just live as a community. Yeah, um, like like culturelessness is a feature of feels like a feature both of rampant consumerism and of like brutalist communism, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. Like so, there's some yeah, and if I mean on the other hand, like if beans and rice is what you can afford, and you're and you're hosting people on that, yeah, that's great. Glory, I will enjoy that. It's like yeah. there's something about the positionality or this like the situation that you're in that 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 serves it. I think you're just like always being, you know, just to kind of link the two, like there, I mean, there just is something local about that now to keep harping yeah. on that, right? Like to think about loving the people who are actually in front of you and actually next to you, right? And that, and so using, using what means you have, whether it's great or little or in somewhere in between, I mean, that's, that's scriptural too. Like you use the means at your disposal, the shrewd, the, the shrewd servant, like you use the means at your disposal to make, to make friends, to, to serve your brothers and sisters who are, who are right here, right next to you to love others. And that's what, you know, you don't, you don't worry about hoarding money and saving money and not spending it on brisket because somehow that's right. No, spend it on them and make friends and draw them nearer to Christ. I, well, I think sometimes that's the answer. And I was just trying to build up your point, Andrew, not mm -hmm. undercut it, but just sort of demonstrate the where you where you finish there, which is that it's like, oh, this is hard. These are these are tough calculations of discernment. Right. Like when is the time to to spare? I, I appreciate being an Orthodox Christian in that there is a there is some guidance from the church. We have our fasting periods where no, you're not going to get brisket at my house. You probably are going to get something like pizza. I'm going to make them as good as I can. But you know, you come in Lent, you're not getting brisket. We don't do that in Lent. And the ideal is to take what the money I saved and give it to somebody who doesn't have food to eat. But if you come in as a non-fasting time, boy, you're going to get a heck of a meal, and I'm going to have to spend some money on it. Um, and th those are tough. There's tough discernment. I, so I appreciate the structure, but it's just to say, I think you're 100% right. And I don't think it's a cop-out at all. Hmm. Give it all to Christ. That's what we have to aim to do. Um, it's just, you know, it, even when you're motivated to do that, you're still in these sticky situations. And then, of course, and then, of course, we have the problem of the fact that I am not always doing that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. Very, frankly, I'm very rarely doing that, you know. When, when I go out for, you know, whatever, like, I have, if I was on my own and just getting something that, just for my own pleasure. It'd probably be like a burger or something, but like, I don't need that. You know, right. um, I do that all the time. Come on. <laughs> and that's not building up the community. I kind of yeah. have no excuse. I mean, but I mean, even there, it's like, well, you know, me getting some enjoyment out of life is not necessarily a bad news for the community. A little more of an energetic Dan. He's got a little, <laughs> he's got a little bit of a spring in his step. Yeah. You know, when it do, he doesn't just go around, you know, dollarous all the time. Mm. That's, but it's just, but I think you're right. It's got to all go to Christ. Mm. Every single penny 
has got to be what we aim for to give him. It all belongs to him. Not, we didn't earn any of this. And that's what we say in, in the liturgy. We say, let us commend ourselves or our, each other unto Christ. Each other and all our life unto Christ. Our yeah, God. our whole life. Every Sunday we say that multiple times. And I do, yeah. And I think like, yeah, to not, not be drawn into this, into this ideological notion that it's like, uh, it's changing the overall society structures and like, and it's happening through making decisions about investments. Mm. It's like, it's not that you shouldn't be like, you should do all things prudently. If you're going to invest then then do it, do it thoughtfully, mindfully. Remember that you're a Christian and the answers I think aren't always going to be obvious, Mm. but like you try and you're going to fail and you're going to learn something and, and, and so forth, but not to get sucked into that sucked into the temptation of thinking like, if I just invest properly, then I'm then I'm going to be doing good. It's like no no no. Like it's like think more locally. If you if if invest like there's all sorts of social reasons why you might need to invest in this or that and and whatever we've talked about that kind of thing. This is the world that we live in. But to but to remember that your neighbor is the one the one next to you. It's not about changing all of Canada or even all of Manitoba or, or even a single city. It's like you've got like. Come into the church, become a part of a tribe, and now you've got people that that you need to help take care of, and that they and they're going to help take care of you too. Just bring it, bring it Glory to the to table, God. and yeah, yeah, to to make it to make it specific and not and not abstracted from that embodied life, but but deeply within it. This very comforting and also extremely challenging message. <laughs> Well, we're, we're really uh, just about done. So thank you so much, Andrew, for being, this has been a great conversation. Yeah, nice to have you. Thank you for having and me. We, appreciate it. We couldn't have done this without you. Um, uh, you know, we, we could have tried, but uh, this, this is I really appreciate way. your expertise and insight <laughs> much, much on, better on how this all works. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we should have you on again. Cause I think there's a lot more. We could it think. feels like we only just like hinted at subjects. I'm Not, never back. mind. I'm scrum, back. Scratch the surface. <laughs> You're holding yeah. back. Well, we'll get, we'll get to you another time and we'll, we'll keep going. But uh, for now, thank you and God bless you. And uh, let's, uh, let's all keep it up and head back to liturgy again. Absolutely. God bless. Thanks, fellas. Money